Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Polygon Alpha podcast, where the Polygon community gathers insights from today's leaders in decentralized finance, Web3, and crypto. I'm your host, Justin Havens, aka Crypto Texan. Let's get started. On today's episode of Polygon Alpha, we are joined by Tarun Chitra, who's the CEO of Gauntlet and the founder of Era Protocol. Tarun, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going? Hey, Justin. Great to be here. You know, I mean, uh, it's obviously been a tumultuous week in this world, but I think there's people now understand uh, you got to be careful about risks. Yeah, I think that's that might be my main concern with this whole uh, debacle is uh, the understanding aspect and just hoping that the regulators don't lump in FTX with what DeFi actually is. And that's something maybe we can talk about a little bit further into this. But I I really just want to start off first with your background and how did you get into the Web3 and crypto space? So I spent the last, I guess, 2022, so 12 years working on on simulation-based research. Uh, And that sort of involves things where you try to model complex systems by, you know, a collection of simple, simpler math models, and you use that to get some understanding about how the whole system behaves. Um, the first types of work I worked on was um, sort of computational drug discovery and, um, you know, at this place called D. Shaw Research. And there we built a, uh, a supercomputer where we made uh, custom chips for it. That was the first time I had heard about Bitcoin. So basically... We were working on building ASICs, but they were not Bitcoin ASICs. And in 2011, 2010, no one was really building custom hardware um, other than academic labs. And there was no Apple making custom chips. There was no self-driving car chips. There was no AI chips. Um, A lot of that stuff just didn't exist yet or like people hadn't tried to productionize it. And so the, the way I sort of first heard about Bitcoin was um, you know, we had put out a chip order for like $25 million and then our supplier, we gave them the, we escrowed the money and then the, our supplier just ghosted us for six months and then came back and was like, Hey, we'll give you a 10% discount. And we were like, you just cost us like six months of like production time and like actually like building this thing, you know, we're trying to build this machine out. Uh, and that was the first time I'd heard that people were building custom hardware for crypto. And I was like, Whoa, this is insane. So I mined a bunch of Bitcoin then, sold it all at the bottom in 2013. And, you know, at that time, I still wasn't totally convinced. Um, But by 2015 and 16, especially when proof of stake first sort of started to to come out, I had, um, you know, basically started to really read the academic papers and the papers people had written on, you know, how to make these systems, what were sort of some of the advances that had happened and um, I think around that time, that was the first time I'd actually seen, you know, real consistent formal mathematical proofs of like when cryptocurrencies work and don't, because there's sort of some classical theory in the in distributed systems. And this is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people who are, you know, really smart CS people don't really believe crypto works is that there's sort of like a lot of nuance into understanding how it gets around certain sort of things that people know that are like certain types of networks that are impossible. And the the sort of theory and math and stuff for that only was invented in 2016, 2017. So like a lot of people, if they 
didn't take a class in that, they would just be like, oh, this thing must not work or it must be centralized by default or, or like, like a lot. There's a lot of ways you, if you didn't understand sort of like the academic literature of that time, you might not have been able to convince yourself that this is not all like this could work and it does work in some cases. So anyway, long story short, people, uh, you know, I read all these papers, really awesome cryptography, really kind of poor financial stuff. So like a lot of people wrote these papers where they were like proof of stake is the same as proof of work. The coin is the same. And there's sort of this sense in which they're not because to, you know, I can kind of borrow the proof of stake coin and increase my, you know, stake in the network and how much of the rewards I earn. Um, on the other hand, for proof of work, I have to borrow electricity and then convert the electricity into Bitcoin or into Ethereum pre-merge. And so that extra step actually changes the financial properties and safety and security of the system. And so that sort of got me down the rabbit hole of, okay, how do you make these things work? I started sort of, I, I told a bunch of, I made some simulations for it, like based off kind of simulations that resemble some things I worked on before, but also took into account some of the crypto specific stuff. And then I found some attacks. I showed some people at some layer ones and then they, they were like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, do you want to work for us? And I, I, at that time I'd kind of been like everyone who'd raised money for layer one was a little bit of a scammer to me. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. It just like, didn't seem like that legit. Cause it was like post ICO boom. Like, uh, yeah, it was like late 2017, early 2018, like still kind of mania moment. Um, but you know, at, at that point I just started talking to people and then I, I was consulting for people instead of trying to work there. And then at some point I quit my job at that time I'd worked in high frequency trading and that was sort of where I, I got the ideas for how to model the, these kind of attacks where you, you, you borrow stake and, you know, as we of course learned this week, leverage can kill, uh, if not done responsibly. Um, but that sort of led me down this path. And, uh, then Facebook tried to buy my one person consultancy for, for Libra. And that was when I was like, you know what, if there's enough demand for all this stuff, people really do care about this risk analysis. They just haven't been, they haven't had time to think about it or haven't formulated how to think about it. Haven't, don't have the mathematical tools, don't have the software tools. And that sort of, yeah, led me to start gauntlet, uh, where we, you know, we do risk modeling for DeFi protocols. Um, you know, we cover, you know, all of the sort of big protocols on, uh, avalanche polygon ETH, um, uh, and a couple other networks, I think Polkadot. Uh, and, and we, we, the idea is that you have to kind of monitor these protocols uh, to make sure that, like, hey, if the DeFi protocol is giving loans that are too aggressively high while the market is going down, you need to submit a governance proposal and say, like, hey, we should actually be lowering the what the loan is. And the beauty of crypto is that all the data for this is public. All the assets and liabilities of these protocols are public. So you can construct a very holistic, very accurate simulation compared to traditional finance where you don't know what your counterparts have. And, you know, as we saw with the, the centralized lenders like Genesis and Celsius and BlockFi blowing up, they also, you know, didn't, they didn't really, it's very clear they didn't uh, spend a lot of time on this. And that's, that's sort of what we do. But one, one of the other things and, and sort of, you know, something we've been building on Polygon for, uh, you know, I think nine months or so, is a protocol for helping DAOs sort of 
manage their treasuries in a decentralized manner, and that's what ERA is, and can definitely talk more about that in whatever direction makes most sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was kind of my next question was, you know, what well, what is Gauntlet, which you, you have already answered. Thank you. And so what is ERA also? Because Gauntlet, and just, you know, to be clear, because I feel like in, in these days, we have to be very clear about what is a centralized organization, what is a decentralized protocol, Gauntlet being a centralized company and era being a decentralized on-chain protocol correct yes so gauntlet the company is a service provider to DAOs. so we 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 go to DAOs. we say hey uh we will monitor your protocol send governance proposals you know we've sent the most governance proposals i think like over 80 percent in compound and ave um and we will, whenever there's something that goes wrong, you know, we're constantly running these simulations off chain. And then anytime something goes wrong, we like submit a governance proposal. And then you have dashboards to see why that decision, why we're choosing those parameters so that people who are involved in this, even if they don't totally understand or they're not like constantly monitoring the protocol, they can have an understanding of what they're voting on when they're voting on changing things in these in DeFi protocols. Uh, and But we are a centralized company. And one of the problems we encountered was we were like thinking about okay how does someone like Ave increase the amount that they can lend safely and so in normal finance the way you do that is you have an insurance fund uh, and Ave does have an insurance fund the safety module however the Ave insurance fund is mainly cons- consists of Ave token it doesn't really consist of the assets that are being borrowed so if there's sort of a crisis, sort of like the one we saw last week. The assets in the insurance fund are going to be going down at the same time that every, all the defaults are happening. And you have to sort of have this ability to match assets and liabilities. And so while we were analyzing, you know, while we do these kind of very fine-grained analyses of protocols, we realized that if the treasuries of these DeFi protocols were managed um, more actively, where the the treasury matches how people are using the protocol. Like if 80% of the loans are in USDC, then the treasury should have, say, 30% of its assets in USDC in case those go under and you have to pay back lenders. Um, and, and you and you want have more, uh, you know, less conservative risk parameters. Uh, and so the idea is that that was what made 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 us start thinking about like how do you think about treasury management for DAOs, right? I think. You know, there's a lot of holistic type of stuff that there's a lot of people who are sort of holistically analyzing this, being like, okay, we should spend 10% of the DAO's um, uh, treasury on grants and 20% on security audits and 30% on liquidity mining and 20% on marketing, if, if there is such such a thing in, in budget, depending on the DAO. And those are not the things I think that ERA is really focused on. ERA is focused on things where there's a quantitative uh, sort of objective for a DAO. So in the case of a lending protocol, it might be, do my assets cover my liabilities? You know, like, obviously, we've seen a lot of stuff, with whether it's with FTX or whether it's with centralized lenders, where they, their assets didn't cover their liabilities. And DeFi, because at, at real DeFi, you know, like the, the stuff that's existed for a while, not, not sort of the, the, the Luna type of stuff, um, and, and has survived for a while, uh, has generically been quite conservative with how, how lending works, which is, which is a good thing, right? I mean, that inevitably. But in order to kind of get 
off-chain finance and on-chain finance to like be anywhere close to each other, you have to be able to sort of actively manage these insurance or treasury funds. And so our initial version is really focused on managing insurance and treasury funds so that you know when there is something like the last week, you can actually cover you know the lenders and make them whole. Um, but the long-term architecture of era is such that any quantitative thing that you can say about a DAO on-chain, if you want to make that your objective, your KPI, your North Star, ERA can basically incentivize people to, op- to make portfolios that optimize your treasury to optimize your objective. So another objective might be, hey, we want to have at least five years of runway. We also want to make sure that we own, the DAO owns at least 20% of its governance token. And we also want to make sure the DAO um, doesn't incur transaction costs more than 5%, right? So those, that's, that's a KPI, right? That's like a thing that uh, members of a DAO could agree on, they vote on that. And you can turn that into an on-chain objective function, so something that you know, can be measured on-chain. And, and the key thing is it being on-chain. So if it's off-chain, then you have to trust the off-chain provider. But when there's an on-chain measurable thing. And then ERA makes a game where people compete to, 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 to give portfolios, like how the DAO should spend its treasury, that maximize that. So, you know, maybe you give a portfolio that says the DAO should be 80% governance token, 10% USD, and 10% Matic. And when you submit that, and someone else says that it should be 50% Matic, 30% governance token, 20% uh, stablecoin. And so you could think of ERA as saying, okay, I'm going to take both your portfolios, I'm going to make an aggregated portfolio, which might be like you know, 40% Matic, 40% governance token, 20% stablecoins, and it trades into and then it makes it trades into that portfolio. And then you know it stays in that portfolio for some amount of time, like say a week. And then the people who submitted these portfolios are graded on how well they optimize the objective. So maybe the person who said, you know, really high Matic percentage was actually correct because the DAO's governance token went down a lot over Matic. And so they get rewarded more. And the person who says, who chooses sort of like a portfolio that does less, they get rewarded less or even slashed if it causes a loss. Um, so does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely it does. And and just for clarity, um, when you're talking about the the Dow Treasury or the Protocol Treasury, this is revenue that has been generated by the protocol, which is then sent to a treasury that is governed by the token holders and not at all the funds that are deposited into the protocol by users. Correct. Correct. So 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 actually, a Dow's Treasury is usually when you create the Dow, some fraction of the Dow's Governance token actually sit in the treasury to be spent over time, and then also fees. But this is not user funds whatsoever. This is this is pure. And the beauty of DeFi versus sort of something like what we saw with FTX is that there is a clear segregation of these funds on chain, and that that's the the beauty of like being on chain as a DeFi protocol. You always have proof of reserves, and you always have proof of liabilities. You can always see both of them, and there's no way of anyone kind of manipulating those. And moreover, you also have separation of DAO treasury-owned funds by the token holders and user funds 
owned by the users, and the users can withdraw whenever they want, right? That's that's paramount. And you know, in the normal in a normal bank in a normal uh, capital structure, it's always sort of like debt holders first, then equity holders, then maybe customers, right? And DeFi flips this on its head because it's customers first, then token holders. And you know, right now there's no debt holders because there's no debt in DeFi, but maybe, maybe there will be one day, right? Right. Maybe maybe there will be. Yeah. And I've also seen, uh, and you're talking about the safety module as well. And so, is the safety module included in the DAO's treasury assets, or is that is that a separate, I guess, pool pool of funds? So, yeah, so I think the safety module is usually separate, um, but it is controlled by the DAO. So one of the things in the obvious safety module, for instance, is that when there is a, an event on chain that's like an insolvency, it allows the DAO to withdraw from the safety module. And like basically the safety module takes a haircut. So anyone can stake Ave in the safety module to earn yield. Um, but the idea is that like, the DAO get, is allowed to use, if you stake it, it's allowed to use that for insurance. But the key there, unlike what happened to, to people who held FTT, is that you are opting in to providing that insurance for the DAO, right? You're earning some yield, but you're opting in. You're not just automatically haircut as an Aave holder if, if, if it's covering the losses. And that's the key thing, I think, about DeFi's design that people kind of underestimate, especially people who are who are only used to the centralized crypto world and haven't and like, you know, most of their experience is, you know, at Binance or FTX or Coinbase. Um, well, I guess I should have said was at FTX. Apologies. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but 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 like the difference is that you, you know, DeFi is really a customer first place, right? Like it really is like you can withdraw first. And I think this is something people in traditional finance don't understand because without self-custody, you can't guarantee that, right? You, you, without you being able to control your keys, you can't really guarantee you could withdraw at any time. You still rely on someone else like actually doing the transfer, whereas in crypto, you don't do that. And the idea of DeFi as the most customer-first type of financial product, I think, is like something hopefully everyone who is like really committed to like the on-chain ecosystem, like we can like convince people of, you know, in a world where people maybe can't differentiate between say FTX and Aave or Compound. Right. And I worked in traditional finance as a commercial lender for uh, about 12 years. And yeah, when I explained this to my former colleagues and friends who still work in that space, it, it's very difficult to get that point across to them. I think uh, the self-custody aspect and how the, the transparency on chain and how centralized entities like FTX, Binance, Coinbase are not DeFi protocols like Aave, Compound, Synthetics, Curve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, in, in my time as a commercial lender, I was also lending money to insurance companies and, you know, the risk bearing entities and also reinsurance companies. And I've also seen ERA be described as a treasury reinsurance protocol. And I, I understand what reinsurance means in the, in the traditional sense. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, does that have a different meaning uh, when ERA is, is talking about it? Yeah. So I think the way we, we think about it is risk aware treasury management. So it's slightly different than reinsurance in some ways, but um, the similarities to reinsurance are the following. If we think of the Aave safety module as being the insurance fund um, in staked Aave, 
if the obvious safety module deposits a, some fraction of its assets into ERA, then ERA is basically taking on the risk, the first tranche risk sort of, of the protocol because it's 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 adjusting the allocation it got to you know whatever the objective is, which is like make sure that the assets in ERA match the liabilities in the Aave protocol. And the liabilities in the Aave protocol fluctuate, right? Anyone can open and close a loan at any time, right? So the the point of this active management is to make sure that that part, but that is very similar to an insurance company selling off their a tranche of their insurance premia to a reinsurer to cover that. So it, it it does share that similarity. I think the difference is in crypto insurance funds aren't really actively managed. So in some sense, anything deposited into ERA serves as sort of half like the primary insurance and half like reinsurance. Does that make sense? Because like usually you think of reinsurance. The, one of the reasons this is kind of complicated is in a normal a normal insurer. Let's say I'm an ins- a insurer of a bank. Um, the bank gives me dollars. And then with those dollars, I sell part of the risk off. But the difference here is that the protocol gives me its governance tokens mainly. So it's giving me a risky asset already. So it, it, that, in that sense, it, like, it, it has a bit of both reinsurance and insurance. So, but the idea is that you know, what does a reinsurer do? What does an insurer do? They trade their premia to match their liabilities as much as possible, right? Right. That that's the point of right. Yeah, exactly. And and the point is, right now in DeFi, we're a little bit held back by the fact that we don't do much management of these insurance funds, even though the liabilities are changing all the time because people are using these protocols. And so the the point of ERA is to solve that in a way that's credibly decentralized. Because right now, almost everything that's treasury management is effectively centralized or goes through a governance vote, but asset management has to be much more responsive than, you know, like a week long governance vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it really just kind of feels like the, the focus of era here is to provide this kind of almost traditional capital efficiency and uh, for, for these DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations. And uh, like, do you really think it's possible that in this, like pseudonymous, transparent world that you and I work in, that we can actually have that traditional capital efficiency with active market, with, like with an active market where participants are, I guess they're in, I think you said like they're incentivized to create the most capital efficient strategies. I mean, I, I yeah, I, okay. That, 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 that makes sense to me. So, you know, it, let's try to like maybe dissect it in the following way. So, what is really capital efficiency? Capital efficiency is like what is the maximum amount of risk-bearing assets denominated in a numerator, say dollars, divided by the minimum amount of supply I need in the protocol of assets to 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 service that uh, risky. Uh, thing right that's sort of you you can think of that as your capital efficiency ratio now in crypto because it's permissionless the denominator the minimum amount of capital you need is is higher because you really can't you can't like grade every user immediately like like people are trying to do things like that but i i think until we are in a little until we've really spent a lot of time on the the sort of like zero knowledge proof version of of lending protocols, I think it's going to be quite hard. Um, but 
the denominator is just always bigger. So the the only way to sort of increase the numerator is to effectively allow every dollar of risk-bearing asset to be covered by sort of some portfolio. That's that's di- like one 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 important part is that there's sort of the the denominator of like the amount of capital you need. The how volatile that denominator is is right now basically how volatile is your governance token because 90% of these treasuries are mainly their governance token, right? But if you reduce the volatility of that, you actually can start increasing the numerator, right? You, 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 actually, you actually know that the numerator is correlated to the denominator. Like the amount of assets going out that are taking risk is correlated to the amounts of assets that are in holding, that are held, that are meant to back that. And part of those assets are the, the, the lender's assets, like the, the users who are supplying. But the key thing, and this is extremely important to avoid something like an FTX where the funds got commingled, is that you 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 want to make sure that the DAO's assets that are supplied are, are being optimized because that actually does shrink the denominator and, and and sort of the volatility in the denominator so that you can have much more confidence in increasing the numerator. You can't just kind of if you commingle funds like like what happened to FTX, you, you suddenly made the the denominator look really big, and so you you're like okay, I can keep making the numerator really high, but you didn't you didn't really. Solve the problem because, like the denominator, if if its volatility goes up, then you're you're blown out of the water on the the portion committed by the the protocol or exchange in this case. And so, so if we think about just do, you know another way of thinking about this is the numerator is the risk assets taken by the borrowers, by the people trading perpetuals, by people making options, whatever. The denominator, however, can be split up into two components. One component is the assets supplied by lenders trying to earn yield. And the other component is protocol-owned liquidity, protocol-provided liquidity, right? And the key is like making sure that you can minimize how much protocol-provided liquidity you need while being able to service the same amount of risk. And that's, you know, in a bull market, you can get away with just making your governance token the protocol-owned liquidity. But in a, in a more optimized market, you, need, you do need to actually... Improve that. Does that make sense? Sorry, maybe it was like two in the weeds. Technically, no, oh, that totally makes sense. No, absolutely. And another question I have is: Are you focusing on DAOs only, or would you also be interested in like other Web two, TradFi, Web two point five entities using this product? I guess it doesn't matter because it's permissionless, right? Yeah, yeah. So the the long term goal is um, actually to basically. You know, like I said, first these insurance funds, but then because the the framework is generic, there's just some index that you target. Think of the index that you target as like an ETF index. The, uh, the index could be like this runway management, treasury management type of thing, like generic treasury management type of problem. Whatever that calculation is, as long as it can be done on chain and you can compute it in a single block, you can use that to mark the portfolios that people are submitting. And so people are competing. Uh, do, do you ever remember? Do you remember the um, the company Numerai? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so you could think of this as like Numerai for DAOs, and, and and there's like different objective functions. They're not just make the maximum amount of money, right? The key thing is that that should not be a DAO's goal with their treasury. Right? The DAO's goal is like lower our volatility, cover our insurance funds. Like they they have different goals. They're they are institutions. They are not degen traders usually, and. One key thing is that Numerai has one very 
key problem slash flaw in, in some ways that, I mean, works in traditional markets, but doesn't work in crypto, which is it relies on an off-chain entity, the company that's running Numerai, to go execute the trades, right? To go, and we have DeFi here. We don't need that. You can have a closed loop. Like, people can give you all the predictions, you aggregate them, you trade into it fully on chain, you grade them fully on chain. And the idea that you have this closed loop that never has to leave the on-chain world makes it much harder to tamper with um, the, the, the process, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And when you were talking about Numerai, I had to look it up because I knew there was a protocol associated with it. And it's like the Eurasia protocol. You're just <laughs> having all these flashbacks. So thanks for that. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I feel like, well, Tarun, are you long-term bullish on DAOs? And do you think they need a legal wrapper? Am I long-term bullish on DAOs? If I, 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 like, I think there will be hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars managed by DAOs. Um, so if, 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 you, if that's bullish, then yeah, <laughs> take that for what it is. But I basically think the internet has never had its own version of an LLC or an LP. And like where it's like credibly an institution that you can, you can actually have, you can validate and you don't need the court system to reconcile choices that are made. Right. That, that, that's sort of the like crazy part. Like so far, if we've looked at the internet right now, I kind of feel like we're in the 1500s and we're like living pre French revolution in a fiefdom, right? There's like a couple big places. We're all really just serfs tilling the land with, with our content we're making. And, you know, there's no way to actually make your own institution. Yeah, sure. You could like put your business on Facebook or TikTok or whatever, but it's actually quite different than you know, having your actual business be native to the internet or native to the platform, right? And like everyone who's ever said they're native to the internet, like Stripe, is not really, right? They're really a wrapper on banks and like hide that from the user so they think they're native on the internet, right? But if you rebuild it from scratch, you have the French Revolution of the internet, which, you know, in my mind is sort of what you're hoping for. Then you need to have the notion of the joint stock company. And you need to have a, a way that the joint stock company exists on the internet as its own entity that can be managed and like has some notion of bylaws and, and some notion of how things get passed and some notion of safeguards, some notion of insurance, all of these things, right? Like all the stuff like a normal company has, except in a way that works without needing post hoc reconciliation from a court. And it, maybe you won't get all of them. But the idea that the, you need credibly neutral online institutions as the future is the thing I'm most bullish on. Whether those institutions are financial, I mean, obviously the financial ones are the easiest ones to see today. They might not all be financial. In fact, they probably won't all be financial. In terms of the wrapper, I'm a little bit torn on that. A lot of the wrappers are LARPing. They're really just like governments trying to like get people who have crypto businesses to open in their and their jurisdiction. And like some of the DAO laws don't even like understand what the decisions a DAO is making are. They don't talk about like multi-sig versus on-chain contract. They don't talk about like all the nuances of actually being a DAO. And so I, I think like at the current state, I would say I'm quite negative on the wrappers, just more from the fact that the the things you see, like the Wyoming DAO law, there's a lot of people who are registered Wyoming DAOs who have never used a Gnosis safe. 
And like, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's, there's right, huge, right. like, then there are a lot of people who kind of like, Oh, we're crypto. We like have a Wyoming Dow LLC. And then you ask them any questions about that and they don't totally understand the on-chain world at all. And I feel like if you believe in this future of like credibly neutral institutions are on the internet that have money of their own that they can manage with their users that of their participants in general, those things don't really match that. And, and, and I, I totally understand that regulators are going to try to come at it that way, right? Like the, the CFTC Uki Dao type of um, notice. But in general, I just don't think that will be the, the way this, this long term evolves. Like, uh, unless governments come up with some framework where there's some notion in which the like real wrapped wrapper of the LLC is forced to check to do this proof of reserves and liabilities for the DAO and like really know it, like the on-chain stuff matches the off-chain stuff and that every off-chain uh, instrument held by the LLC corresponds one-to-one at all times with an on-chain representation, whether it's an NFT, whether it's a token, whether it's some other type of digital asset. Um, and I think the only people who've actually really focused hard on that direction is MakerDAO in the sense that like the MakerDAO real world assets do try to guarantee that. Now, of course, you could argue that they haven't been that successful at onboarding, whereas like these wrappers have sort of been faster at onboarding. Um, but I guess my long term point is like if we really want these institutions to be truly you know, without the training wheels of like the fintech companies and like people who like are really wrappers around existing systems. Um, I, th- I think we actually need like some type of thing that is force forces the off chain piece and on chain piece to be, you know, really, really, really synchronized, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, and I, I was just really interested to get your opinions on that. And yeah, I, I totally agree in the sense that, you know, I think DAOs and, and tokens, like they provide these new primitives for human coordination. And I talked about this a little bit two episodes ago when I was talking with John over at Opolis. But yeah, well, the first time when I was working with the Index Co-op DAO or the Index Coop DAO, however you want to say it, um, when I first started contributing and I just you know, got paid directly to my wallet on chain and there's no bank accounts. There's just a group of people who came together over a common cause. It was, it was pretty fascinating to me. It was definitely like a huge light bulb moment. And I think it's like, it's so interesting how tokens create this incentive of alignment for people who live all over the world to act the way in which I guess the protocol is intending them to act and uh, to to go back to era. uh, Y'all have, uh, I think two or maybe three really uh, different parties that help make the protocol act in in the way it's supposed to. You've got the guardians, you've got the arbitragers, and then you've got the actual DAOs as well. So I'm wondering if you can just kind of talk through those incentives, those incentive structures that make everything work. For sure. So um, the, idea is that you know a DAO would vote to deposit some of its treasury into an era vault um, and in the beginning actually for era vaults era governance would vote to allow it in in the same way that compound or Ave you know you can't add any asset and of course you know gauntlet over the last two years has fielded many people trying to ask us to add FTT or UST and it can be quite important to be a little bit selective when it comes to insurance like 
things. And our goal is for objective functions that are like treasury management that don't don't have any risk. It'll be sort of trustless. You should be able to make your own vault without any interaction. But for things that involve risk, um, we're being a lot more careful. We're like both governances have to agree on on the vault. You can think of it as like a bilateral partnership. And uh, once once that happens, DAO deposits its its uh, uh, assets. Well, actually, the DAO both DAOs are actually voting on the objective function. So maybe its assets always need to be greater than liabilities. Maybe it's you know we need this much runway. We want this little. We want to be you know this correlated to the market and this uncorrelated to the market. Things like that. And then after that, the guardians they submit portfolios. Um, for what the DAO should should be in, so maybe it should be fifty percent um, governance token, uh, you know, thirty percent uh, stable coins, and the remainder in ETH or Matic or options on those. And the guardians each will, you know, th- then the protocol has a way of aggregating their portfolios. The, think of the way like a, you know, an oracle aggregates many people submitting a price. Here it's aggregating many people's portfolios, but it's aggregated in a way that's based on how well they've done in this system. So you can, I wouldn't call it like a, a full reputation system as much as a system of like how good have you been at predicting over many rounds and like you, you increase your relative score uh, based on how well your predictions have worked and you decrease if they, they get worse. So there is a, it is a sort of track record, but it's not reputation in the sense of, you know, I think a lot of people in, more in the Web three non finance space have a notion of like on chain reputation that's much stronger. Like it involves some sort of notion of persistent identity. This is not quite the same. You can't transfer it, and it's really about like, does this address generally send good portfolios? And if they do, they their their thing when aggregated is higher. So a bunch of oracles do actually do this. So Chainlink off chain has a scoring system. Um, Pith on chain has a scoring system. So, like, if you're a good Pith submitter, your prices get, you know, your price is weighted higher than someone who has less of a track record of good submissions. And so, the idea here is you're building on chain reputation for submitting these portfolios based on how well they perform. And then, you know, there's sort of a notion of like an epoch, think like a proof of stake epoch, where over a certain amount of time, you know the the protocol trades into a portfolio and then it holds that portfolio and then at the end of the epoch people get graded and that's when you update their rep how well they did sort of this you know this sort of uh you know their track record and then you pay fees or slash people so the guardians have to stake in order in order to provide um, recommendations and um, part of the reason for that is that uh, the, the last agent in the system that that you mentioned is the arbitrageur. So the arbitrageur will trade against the DAO's portfolio in the vault until it reaches the target portfolio. So let's say initially at time zero, the DAO's portfolio is 50-50 Matic USDC. And then the submitters say actually it should be 80-20 Matic USDC. And the, the arbitrageurs trade against the vault until it reaches to 80-20. And then the 80-20 portfolio is held for a certain amount of time, and then the guardians are graded. Now, you could imagine the guardian and the arbitrageur being the same person, or colluding. And the guardian just gives, a, a, the, the, like if there's just, say, one guardian, 
they and they could skew the the portfolio to be say go from 50-50 to 90-10 then the protocol would be sell or let's say 10-90 then the protocol would be selling a lot of matic um, at at basically cheap prices and the arbitrageur would be able to buy it at cheap prices so in some sense you need to make sure that the guardians are not colluding with the arbitrageurs and and having the dao sell its assets cheaply and so the notion of slashing in this system is to basically ensure that the economic damage done by a bad portfolio is at least is is sort of the amount that you get slashed is at least that. So is the is the slashing is that occurred like in an optimistic sense? It, yeah, it happens at after the like you submit a portfolio, you stake, and then you know at the end of the the round you're slashed if you get slashed. And I think I think some people would also consider the fact that I guess the more technically the more capital efficient you are, the more risk you are accepting. And so, uh, I guess, what are your thoughts on mitigating that type of risk, or is it also if you're too capital inefficient, uh, is the risk due? Is the risk there as well? So you know, we've spent Gauntlet spent we spent the last four years basically working on how do we improve capital efficiency by adjusting these parameters with with sort of when market conditions change. Um, and one thing we've realized is like over time from like really really analyzing these things and continuously running millions of simulations every week um, is that you do need some notion of a better capital buffer to. Increase to to be able to increase risk. Like like this gets back to the the fact that the first DeFi protocols, like Compound, when it launched, you know the denominator of the how much capital are we lending out versus how much you know capital do we have to have sitting in the protocol to service that assumed that the protocol contributed nothing to that to the to the denominator, right? And so then all the capital had to come from the suppliers, which meant that it had to be way more over collateralized to be safe. Um, and the, the goal is over time to allow the DAO to contribute more and more capital so that the, the denominator gets bigger and then you can start increasing the amount of risk that goes out that, so the numerator can go up and then you basically improve capital efficiency that way. And right now we just have not, you know, that is what a good institution does, right? Is that they they put in their own capital to ensure that the numerator stays up while not mixing their capital. Wait, uh, did you say that was the point all along with Compound was for the protocol to contribute its own capital for like that baseline? I I think not. I, I'm not sure oh, if that okay, was okay, the okay. intention, but but the idea is the protocol does earn fees, right? Correct. And the fees yes. Are sitting yes. in the DAO. And over time, and, and Compound V3 is starting to move to this model, right, where like the DAO can do some of the liquidations, is basically a, a way in which all the capital that's accruing over time, you can use it to sort of act as a backstop and then allow higher collateral factors, right? That's what happens in traditional finance. It's just that in DeFi, you have to really be careful because it's permissionless and you can't like go sue someone when the loan goes bad, right? Which means like you have to be very, very careful about these, these, these parameters. And obviously why we err on the side of safety over efficiency a lot, right? Um, 
But I, I think that your your second question about whether capital inefficiency can be um, risky, uh, that actually can be true if you basically, by being quite capital inefficient, you disincentivize people creating liquidity for processing liquidations because they happen so infrequently that no one wants to LP in the the Uniswap pool or, or, or balancer pool or sushi swap pool for that asset over time because they're not getting the fees they're getting is are, are not that big and oftentimes liquidations generate huge fees for LPs and so there's sort of this interesting thing of like yes inefficiency is bad if liquidity goes down <laughs> so it, it, it but it's it's not super intuitive and I would say we haven't seen it happen with many assets. One example, however, where we did see this happen, um, although obviously it has many confounding variables, so it's not as simple as a story I'm saying, is, um, is, uh, was sort of with X sushi on, on Nave and, and, and sort of there, there've been a couple examples where we're, we're like, Right, that whole I, I I remember I remember that that was recent too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I actually have a, a presentation I gave at this security conference, like detailing how the math of that thing worked because the attack is actually quite complicated. And and we we put up Gauntlet put up like the emergency proposal to like help freeze that. So I spent a lot of time thinking about it. But the weird thing there is theoretically, X sushi is supposed to be redeemable one to one. But the way it ca- calculated how much you could redeem allowed you to redeem more. And the liquidity in the LP pool for liquidating it looks very different if you kind of cause this wrong side redemption. So the reason I bring this up is there is a sense in which capital inefficiency doesn't incentivize people to LP, which can be bad when there's actually a bunch of defaults. Whereas capital efficiency actually will have a ton of liquidations, but then that the LPs who are LPing in those pools are making money, so then there's enough liquidity. So th- th- this is why I'm saying these complex systems. You have to what you know how do how do you how do we simulate things? Is you take the pieces you understand really well, and like you really 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 have accurate models for each individual Lego, and then you you simulate interactions between two Legos, and you spend a lot of time really, really testing the interactions, and then you slowly build up more and more interactions. You don't just go like, hey, here's the whole system, I'm going to simulate the world all at once. And I think that's some of the things that sometimes people don't understand about doing sort of agent-based simulation and, and, and fine, fine-grained simulation, which is done in a ton of engineering fields. It's done in finance. It's done in basically every type of engineering field. Um, Petroleum engineering, like building cars, like every everyone does simulation of some form, right? And so, one thing that's very hard to understand is people oftentimes like this is so complicated. There's so many pieces. There's so many users. Like, how do you keep track of everything? The beauty of blockchains versus anything I ever dealt with in traditional finance is that the data is all there. There's no data that's missing. There's no like inferring things about other people in the way the off-chain world works. And, and arguably, something like FTX happens because they had to, they, they stayed off-chain, right? They stayed away from this thing that like really guarantees that you know what's happening. Um, and, and because of that, you can do better simulations, but you have to simulate each component really carefully and slowly build up the system, not just try to like simulate the whole world all at once, because it's actually very hard then to know what assumptions you're making at each step. And so, 
you know, I don't think I would have thought about era without actually trying to, to run these experiments and, and, and really see, uh, see what happens under different assumptions of these things. And this is why I build it, bring up this capital inefficiency point. It, if I looked at the DeFi protocol, it's alone. If I looked at a lending protocol on its own in isolation, capital inefficiency seems fine. But if I look at its effect on another protocol, like the LPs in the Uniswap pool, Cap, it, it actually can be bad. And so that, that's sort of, yeah, I, I sort of went through the, the long description of that to make, make it clear of like why you need to be very careful about how you put, put together these pieces and reason about, um, you know, how they interact and, and, and safety in those scenarios. Yeah. No, that, that actually, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, before we, before we have to sign off, because we are kind of running up on time. I also want to talk about just more. You've touched on this a little bit already, but you know how in DeFi, and you're probably exhausted about talking about FTX as much as I am. Getting calls from all of your uh, traditional finance friends and just trying to explain everything. But how in DeFi are some of the problems that FTX had like mitigated, or it, it couldn't have gone, or, or it could have gone a much different way? It, especially like using era because like in my opinion and a lot of other people who are very involved in DeFi and that are crypto native, like this is DeFi's time to shine. Right. And a lot of people are not seeing it that way because they don't understand quite yet. I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple of confounding variables that I've always found funny, which is like people always like to point to Luna as being DeFi and like it does have some, some semblance of like, DeFi, but it doesn't have the semblance of like taking advantage, like being very careful about the excess assumptions that are being made in the decentralized world. Like you can't really prevent borrowers from from you know continuing to borrow on outside of how well aggressively you set the parameters for liquidating them. Right, and it's like in Luna's case too. It's like it, is an algorithmic stablecoin technically DeFi? I mean, I guess, but it's just poorly written code. DeFi, and in a sense, in my, in my opinion. And the idea of like having in, infinite rehypothecation, like yes, being able to borrow one that. to one. Like this is why the risk parameters and all these protocols are extremely important to A, set correctly, and B, constantly monitor and update. Like right before Luna blew up, there were a bunch of governance proposals for just like lowering the interest rate and in anchor by like 10% or 15%, and like no one wanted to do it. And, and and this this just tells you it's like you need a community that also values risk management uh, in in when when you're dealing with these these systems in a way such that they don't make mechanisms that you know don't even have levers for people to to, to fix right. But I think you know if we get back to the the benefits of DeFi, the two things that everyone on Twitter, for instance, is talking about is proof of reserves. Proof of reserves is not that interesting because if you think about FTX, their their net their liabilities were the thing that was minus nine billion. Their reserves were still a billion, and like yes, users could be like, oh, I have more than X there, but like unless there was a single depositor with more than a billion dollars, they would maybe not be so convinced, right? If like if like the largest creditor, let's say, which is like at least the one largest I know of, is like Genesis at like one seventy five million. If you had $175 million on exchange and you saw a reserve and you had a proof for it that it was a billion, you're probably like, 
seems a little tight, but like it's not so crazy. I don't know who else is there. Maybe they all left. Like, 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 like it's not so it's not so obvious at all. Um, whereas like the liabilities were the real problem, right? Like, where's the minus nine billion? Like, that's coming from these loans, and like you need you need something more like a a ZKP. But the problem with ZKPs is you have to just like you have to trust the inputs that to the ZKP, right? And so being on chain, you trust the inputs. So you can do things like zero knowledge proofs. You can do things like inspecting the entire set of creation and destruction of liabilities and assets. And it's done in a way that you no single entity can manipulate it. Um, in terms of era, I think the main thing, right, and this gets back to what we talked about, and, and I know this is oftentimes like, uh, a, a maybe like nuance, maybe not super interesting thing to think about if you're not like a finance nerd. But this notion of an asset liability mismatch is exactly what FTX had, right? At some point, they had more assets and liabilities. There, there's no way they, that that didn't happen at some point. Like they couldn't have always had more liabilities. So if we go back in time and try to trace when did the assets and liabilities diverge, and like, could they have done something to 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 reduce that divergence? Probably. I mean, obviously, you know, there's tons of tweets from Alameda saying they they stopped hedging in 2021, so maybe not. But the point is that people can keep them honest. That hey, your asset liability gap is growing. Like, you should do X. You should do Y. You need to do add more safeguards here. And I think that type of stuff is done best by people who have skin in the game in keeping that type of system stable and not just skin in the game of like, I'm going to just keep borrowing from this thing and no one can see me doing it. Yeah. Right. You shouldn't use current liabilities to buy long-term assets or vice versa long-term. Yeah. You shouldn't, you shouldn't use short-term liabilities to, or long-term liabilities by short-term assets, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All of that type of stuff can be tracked by everyone who's participating in the protocol whose funds are in it in DeFi. That's absolutely not true in the FTX days. In fact, arguably, this is just, I'm not a lawyer. It's not my like official <laughs> opinion. But, like, this is, there's no financial advice, not legal advice, not life advice. But arguably, Luna is not actually like a criminal. I'm not saying that, I, I mean, personally, I have an opinion, but I'm not going to say my opinion, but... But like Luna could be viewed as a non-criminal act or like the collapse in some ways. I mean, there, there might have been stuff like off chain that was, but because everything you could see and you could argue that all of the users explicitly were agreeing to the terms of service of the node, like the node's code, how it processed things, the risk that was there. And look, the assets and liabilities were public. That's why everyone could see it. And like that happened. FTX, on the other hand, is much closer to fraud, right? Like, it is actually, like, that was not, you didn't agree to do that, right? You didn't agree to lend out your money. Like, the terms of service even say that. So, it's quite, it's, one is much more, like, and the accounting, like, they had to tell the auditor something different, right? Like, they, clearly there was, like, fraud there, whereas in, in the Terra Luna case, there's, like, obviously calamity, but there was actually technically like you could see what happened. And so even, even, even just juxtaposing those, like the, you have to, you have to just see that like the transparency aspect is, is really something that we've never really had in finance. 
And and it, I know it's going to be hard to use. It's going to take forever for the UX to get easy for the average person to use. But you know, long term, this is this is the way of, of actually being able to have like a responsible system. Yeah, and how on on your point, like I, I think you and I might be on the same page there. But how interesting would it be if Doe did go to prison for a what I would consider a failed project, and SBF doesn't go to prison for what is. Um, what I feel like is just fraud. I mean, it's, it's just, it would be very interesting to see like that double standard, I think. Yeah. I, all I have to say with that is the, the court system has had historical mm-hmm. double standards. So I, <laughs> that's, that's very true. That's very true. I, I do uh, think, however, this is like, it, it, it does feel like Enron where I remember like in, in the Enron case, like the, the, the executives were like friends with the president Bush at that time. But then, like, because they got in trouble and were known to be friends with him, the like law actually went a little bit harder than it would it could have, um, because like everyone was a little too embarrassed. So, like, I kind of feel like that might be there might be a little bit of that reaction here. Well, well, time will tell. We we will see. Um, but before we sign off, because we are uh, pretty much up on time, uh, is there anything that you wanted to touch on? Relate? I, we kind of got off topic there a little bit, but related to Era or Gauntlet that maybe we haven't had time to address? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the main thing is like decentralized lending, decentralized treasury management are, are the key things in DeFi that you know every protocol effectively somehow will need or need to do in a world where the, we have an internet institutions being DAOs. And I think if you look at what happened, Alameda paid back all the DeFi protocols first <laughs> because they knew they would get liquidated. And right, like that exactly. in and of itself should be the ultimate truth for why this stuff is really good. Like even the worst actor still has to pay back the smart contract. Right, yeah. And it's like in that case, it's kind of interesting because those decentralized lending and borrowing protocols are the most senior lender in the entire capital stack in that sense. Right. Because they put the customers first, like they put their customers first above the equity holders and, you know, maybe debt holders. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Tarun, it has been a real pleasure having you on. Thanks for talking era and everything decentralized finance with us here on the Polygon Alpha podcast. For those of you watching on Polygon TV on YouTube, thank you for watching. For those of you listening on Spotify and Apple, Thank you for listening. We will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. And thanks again, Tarun. 